Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister... So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, no, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus was once more deeply moved, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you were always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. 
Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest this year, um, that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one, so that from that day on they plotted to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a visit called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees were given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Thanks, Christina. I know that was a long one. Angela asked me this morning if I was ready, and I uh, thought about it for a second, and I told her that uh, getting ready for a sermon is like shaking a can of Pepsi all week. So that that leads to either something really exciting or really dangerous on Sunday morning. But Ralph told me that he was praying, so if Ralph prays, you know it's going to be all right. John 11. Uh, where are we in the story? This is actually, it's the middle of a story, right? We're reading a long, long story. If we read the whole story, we'd be here for several hours. Um, we're just doing this a chapter at a time. Uh, in John 10, the people in Jerusalem again tried to stone Jesus for the umpteenth time, and again for saying that he was one with God, uh, and again Jesus escapes. Uh, he leaves Jerusalem uh, In uh, verse 1040, it says he goes to the place where John was baptizing in the early days. Now, what he's talking about is Perea. Jav, can you put up the the, uh, map? Right there is Perea. He was in Jerusalem when they tried to stone him, and he went halfway uh, back to Galilee on the other side of Jordan to hide out for a little while. Uh, John 11 marks a break in the structure of the book. Uh, There's a before John 11 and then there's an after John 11. The first 10 chapters of John cover three years of Jesus' teaching and serving in Israel, and then the last 10 chapters of John cover about a week. Uh, Imagine flying from Portland to San Francisco on a jet. You're going about 600 miles an hour. You land, you get off the plane, and then you walk on the promenade for two hours. That's literally the exact difference in speed. Um, So... uh, We're flying for 10 chapters, and then we're walking for 10 chapters. Uh, They happened on the same trip, but this view is totally different. Uh, John was giving an overview. He was giving an overview, stopping for highlights. Look out your window on your left. You see Crater Lake. Look out the window on your right. You see the woman at the well. That's the kind of trip we've been taking. Uh, Now John is slowing to walking speed, and he's expanding the story, uh, getting all the details in. Uh, It seems to me there are probably two reasons 
um, why he changes from the compact timeline to the expanded timeline. Uh, First of all, it stands to reason that John understood more of this second part. He, He came in as kind of a raw recruit, didn't understand a lot of what Jesus was doing, but the more he was with Jesus, the more he understood. Um, uh, Familiarity with Jesus' purposes led to an understanding of the story. Experience led to knowledge. And so he reported what he knew the most about. This last week, he was, had been trained. He's there. He's ready. And he understands a lot more of what Jesus is doing. Um, And the implications of the story got bigger. The last week of Jesus' life, that's pretty important. So he's putting a lot of time into that. Secondly, it may be for personal reasons. Uh, This is purely my conjecture. You're not going to find this in the text itself, but it could be that Jesus is remembering his, or Jesus, John, is remembering his friends here. Uh, He's giving them one last big hurrah. He names most of them in this last week, makes sure everybody gets their own story. Um, What he's doing is reminiscing. Uh, Remember, Jesus and Mary and Martha and Peter and Philip, uh, these weren't just characters in a story for John. These were his friends. They were legends, but they were also his friends. Uh, As far as we know, John was the last of the 12 disciples to die. And very likely, when this was being written, he was the last one left alive. Um, Only one of his friends who isn't already... He's the only one of his friends who isn't already in paradise. He's, but he's here remembering them. Um, he may be actually dictating this as one of his last acts. We know it's probably one of the last books written in the New Testament. Um, he's saying, let's get this on paper. Let's give the whole story. So when he described Perea, you almost hear a little bit of wistfulness in the way he talks about it back in 1040, the place where John was baptizing in the early days. I remember when we were back in Perea, and this is where Jesus ended up. Um, So there's two sections of John, 10 chapters to cover three years, and then 10 chapters to cover a week. And in between the two sections is chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. Unlike most parts of John, this chapter isn't connected to a time frame. Usually you have something like a feast or a holiday that they, or a Sabbath or something describing when this is happening. Um, but the Lazarus section seems to be almost entirely personal. It's not connected to, and then this time of year happened, and then you know we did this because we were remembering this part of history. This is almost entirely personal. It's less to do with history and really just to do with his friends. Um, as we go through, through this, you'll see how personal it gets. And because it's personal, John makes this story count. It's the longest story in the entire book. Um, Sorry, Christina. Um, And he really gives it a literary flourish. It reads, and follow me here, it reads like a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. He carefully concentrates on the way he's telling the story. If you doubt me, this is the start of Brothers Grimm Rumpelstiltskin. Once there was a miller who was poor, but who had a beautiful daughter. Now it happened that he had to go and speak to the king in order to make himself appear important. He said to him, I have a daughter who can spin straw into gold. Here's the start of Lazarus. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
Do you hear the storyteller cadence in it? Um, you, you introduce the person, you introduce the problem, you introduce their family, and then there's this expectation that a king might be the last hope to fix it. Um, the setup, it's very Brothers Grimm feeling. It's um, something that we should be very familiar with. Um, you know that scene at the beginning of every fairy tale movie where uh, the narrator sits in the rocking chair, lights a fire, and looks out at his grandchildren, and then the lights fade, and then he starts telling the story? That's kind of the feel that we're getting. Um, John is telling his tale carefully. He's taking care of his friends with his words. Um, Give me the next slide, Jab. This is the gravestone of Datus. There's his name right there. He's a 20-year-old man. He was buried in the catacombs of Rome in the 3rd century. And this is what his uh, parents decided, or his family decided to put on his grave. It's Jesus raising Lazarus. Um, It's hopeful. That's a hopeful thing to put on a gravestone. Um, And interestingly, if you see here, Jesus is using a wand and I don't know if that's some sort of pagan influence where they felt like his miracles were magic tricks, but this is very common in, in uh, art, the first few centuries of the church, where Jesus would be doing a miracle and he's holding a staff or a wand like that. And it might, it might actually be a reflection of Moses did his miracles with, with the staff, so it might be similar to that. So even though it's not in the Gospels that Jesus did this, it was common thought in the art, the early art of the church, that he was often using a staff like that. Um, first few chapters of chapter 11, or the first few uses of chapter 11, we already have a lot of information. I read that introduction, the Brothers Grimm introduction. Here's what we've already got now. Next slide, Jav. Uh, Lazarus, Eleazar, it's an Aramaic word. It means God is the helper. Lazarus is a man in need of help. Um, we usually call this the story of Lazarus, but here's an interesting note. Lazarus does nothing until verse 44. He never speaks in the whole story. In fact, in the whole Bible, he never speaks. And even though Lazarus is the focus of the miracle, the story is a lot more about his sisters. Um, John puts them in the thick of the story. Uh, they drive it. Uh, they act. They speak. They believe. And after he's healed, they throw the party. They're the ones that are active in the story. Um, we probably actually should call this the story of Mary and Martha, or the next story of Mary and Martha, the sequel. Uh, really, Lazarus just lays there, and when he's told to, he stands up, and that's the sum of his action. Um, so let's meet his sisters, Mary and Martha. Next slide, Jav. Uh, it's very probably the same women who are in Luke 10, where Mary's, Martha is the hardworking homemaker, and Mary is sitting there listening to Jesus, and Martha gets mad and says, hey... She should, she should work too, and Jesus says Mary's approach is fine, don't bug her. That's the same, probably the same people. Um, uh, Mary, or Miriam, that's a Hebrew or Aramaic root word um, forming her name, and it means rebellion or the rebel. Uh, we know that Mary is emotional. Uh, she's given to grand gestures like pouring perfume on Jesus' feet. She was that Mary, um, and she was often crying all over him. Uh, how do you find a word that means Maria? The Philiberty gibbet, a will-o'-the-wisp, a clown. That's kind of the feel here. Uh, and in, in fact, in chapter 12, you'll see the disciples do think she's a clown. She thinks she's, they think she's messing things up by being silly. Uh, next slide, Jab. Uh, Martha, or Marta, um, 
was a Chaldean or Aramaic word. It means mistress, or if you're a fan of Downton Abbey, it means the lady of the manor. Um, she is the take charge person. She's the doer. Uh, she's the thinker in the family. Uh, two very per- different personalities here, the sisters, but when Lazarus got sick, what does it say? The sisters sent word to Jesus. They both knew that he had the answers, and they took joint action. Two very different approaches to life, but when Lazarus was sick, they thought together, we got to get Jesus. Um, That's what's known in Bible speak as a parable. Uh, People who are take-charge doers and rational thinkers have the same spiritual resource that emotional grandiose people have. Uh, Jesus has answers that people need, that people need, and he caters how he gives those answers to the kinds of people that he's showing love to. He has the answers for the Marthas of the world and for the Marys of the world. Jesus hears Lazarus is sick. Uh, Verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus won't end up dead. John tells us how much Jesus loved these three people. Then Jesus apparently sits around for two days before he does anything. That's very odd behavior. So I'm going to call back something we said when we were studying chapter 9. Remember that we talked about the four messianic miracles, how the religious leadership expected certain things from the Messiah as signs that he was actually the Messiah. They were healing a Jewish leper, and that has been done. Healing a mute, demon-possessed man, that has been done. Healing a man born blind, which was in John 9. We looked at it in John 9. And the final messianic miracle was raising a man from the dead who had been dead for four days. That's the fourth messianic miracle they were expecting. Um, at the time, people believed that when someone passed for three days, their spirit would hover around the body. There's nothing in the Bible to support this, but that's what they thought. And so they based this messianic miracle on the idea that, well, once the spirit has departed, nobody can raise anybody from the dead except the Messiah who can call the spirit back from wherever it is. Um, So Jesus gave the miracle two extra days to percolate. He worked with what they were expecting and said, all right, This isn't just going to be a resurrection. This is the big one. We'll make this the big resurrection. Four days. So he waits two days to make sure it happens. Let's notice something else. Why is Lazarus sick? It says, for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. This is almost the same language that he used to describe the man born blind in chapter 9. Remember, this man was born blind so that the glory of God could be manifest in him. It's the same language. Uh, The purposes of these two uh, miracles is the same. The explanation of the suffering is the same. One difference is that the man born blind was alone. His parents hung him out to dry because they were afraid of religious leaders. Lazarus' family believed openly. Mary the rebel and Martha the doer, remember? So, Jesus tells his disciples... They're going back to Judea. The disciples don't like it. Verse 8, But Rabbi, they said, 
A short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Let's explain very briefly how close Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived to the people who tried to kill Jesus, okay? This is the map again. There's Jerusalem. They ran to, to Perea. Well, they didn't run. They went to Perea to get out of the way for a while. And he said, hey, let's go back to Judea. Bethany is so close to Jerusalem that it doesn't register on this map. In fact, if you, let's see, it's 1030, and I have about five and a half pages of notes left. If somebody started walking from Kingwood, let's call Kingwood the temple where they tried to stone Jesus, and you wanted to walk from the temple to the place where Lazarus lived, to Bethany, you could walk out this door, walk across the bridge, and go to the Globe and Riverfront Park. That's how far it was. Someone could do it before I'm done with my sermon. So, they are hard by the place where they just tried, someone just tried to kill him. The danger's real. Um, in verse 47, someone actually does go from Bethany to the temple to tell the leadership. This happens. The danger is very real. Uh, Jesus tells them in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. And as is often the case, the disciples have trouble with the metaphor. They don't understand Jesus' metaphors. Uh, Jesus has to put the hay down where the goats can get it a little bit. They don't, oh, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. That's good to rest. Well, no. Verse 14, then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas shows up. He's the only disciple named in this story. Very briefly, he shows up. Thomas, known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas takes a lot of abuse in the world um, for what he does actually in John chapter 20. We'll get there. When he says he's not going to believe that Jesus is alive until he pokes his finger through the nail holes in his body. And he got a nickname out of it. What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas, right? That's kind of rude. <laughs> um, we don't call Peter, Peter the jerk who denied Jesus. We don't call Mark the naked coward. Thomas gets kind of a raw deal with his nickname. Right here, Thomas is the one who volunteers first to risk his life for the cause. Um, it could be that he's actually pretty gung-ho about it. Hey, let's go die. It's probably, I doubt that that's really it. Um, but he's definitely willing. He's resigned to the idea that this might end up with him dying. Following Jesus might end up that way. And he says, we've come this far. We might as well go die. Let's go die with Lazarus. Either way, Thomas is a stand-up guy, and he doesn't really deserve the kind of scorn we heap upon him sometimes. Thomas is the one who's willing to go first. So, Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha send for Jesus. Jesus goes, but only after Lazarus is dead. Show me the next slide, John. This is the raising of Lazarus by Giotto. It's uh, painted in 1304. Uh, Remember when we studied uh, John 4, how we talked about uh, women at the time being veiled? 
you can see that the women here are actually veiled. This is historic, historic accuracy is what that is. Um, the exception in here is Mary. See how she's not veiled? This is a, a commentary on how close the sisters are to Jesus, that it doesn't seem like a breach of etiquette to unveil themselves. In the crowd, the women are veiled, but when Mary goes to Jesus, she's shown you know, very intimately interacting with Jesus. She's not veiled. Um, another very interesting thing about this, go back, Jeff, uh, is that the angel, you can see his little halo here, the angel leading, leading at Lazarus out of the tomb, he's not white. He's very dark compared to the other characters. And I don't know if this is something to do with uh, a vision of bronze skin or something like that, but he appears to be Moorish or, or African. And someday, Giotto and I are going to sit down and I'm going to find out why his, his angel was not the same race as the rest of the people in this painting. I think it's pretty, pretty interesting to ponder, and I'm going to ponder that for a while. It's going to stick with me. Um, the next 20 verses. We have two parallel stories. Remember when I said that Jesus is a resource for everyone, that uh, he adjusts his means to serve different people? Here's your example. Verse 20, Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. There's your split. The, the, the sisters sent for Jesus, but when he gets there, they split into two stories. Martha is the doer. Mary is the emotional one. You ever read the book Anna Green Gables or see the movie? This line is actually in the movie too. Uh, I picture Martha as the Marilla of the story. Uh, her life is, this is how she describes clothing, good, sensible, serviceable, without any frills or furbelows. She's the Marilla of the story. Mary is the Anne character. She's forever swooning over something. My life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. That's, that's Mary, those two characters. Martha hears Jesus is there, and she goes out to meet him. The parallel story in verse 28, she, Martha, went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. One goes of her own accord. One of them has to be called. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The parallel story, verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Did you catch what they said? It's verbatim the same. They said the same thing to him. Um, how does that happen? How did two people in two different places say the exact same thing? They'd already been saying it to each other. This is the story they've been telling each other for the last four days. If Jesus had been here, our brother would not have died. But literature professors always ask you to compare and contrast characters. One sister speaks the line as a statement of fact. Martha does. Mary says the line, falling at his feet in tears. Jesus knows these two women very well. He reads the two situations. With Martha, he has a theological discussion about her statement. Verse 23, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Theological discussion. He, he talks the, theology with Martha. With Mary, he goes along with her emotion. Verse 33, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Two women said the same thing to him, but he knew them. He knew what each of them needed. And so that's where he went with each, each conversation, the two parallel stories. One rational, one emotional. One Jesus, who is rational and emotional, whatever his friends need. This is obviously an oversimplification. Nobody is uh, all business or all emotion. Those, those types of people don't actually exist. Uh, but personalities do differ, and so John wants to address those differences, and he makes the contrast really clear for the sake of the story. Remember, he's telling this like literature, taking very careful, he, taking care of his friends this way. Did you know that Jesus not only works with variety, he likes it? He's not just putting up with two different types of people here. He likes these people. He dives into a discussion of the afterlife with Martha, and then he cries with Mary. He reveals secrets about the new birth to Nicodemus, the academic Pharisee, the ultimate insider. He reveals that he's the Messiah to the uneducated woman at the well, who's an outcast. He gathered Roman collaborators and, he, and anti-Roman zealots, called them disciples, made them sit around campfires together. Variety and personality is what Jesus wants because variety and personality is what Jesus made. Remember in John 1, without him nothing that was made has been made. Jesus made people different that way. He likes that. Um, for sure, Jesus requires that his friends are united with some, in some actions. Everybody is supposed to do certain things. He wants everybody to love the poor, to help the weak, to welcome the stranger, visit the lonely, to deny themselves. But whether you're an academic or a flibberty gibbet or a stoic or Agent Moonbeam, your personality is okay with Jesus. He can work with it. He likes it. The sisters tell Jesus they believe he has the power to stop death. He goes to the grave, calls Lazarus. Lazarus comes out. Ray, his one role. And then Lazarus is gone from the story again. Show me the next uh, slide, Jeb. This is a painting called Lazarus by John Scally. It's actually modern. It looks quite uh, gothic, but it's a modern painting. And I'll be honest with you, this kind of gives me the creeps. But this is probably very close to what they saw when Lazarus came out of the tomb. It said he had the grave clothes still on his face and on his, you know, he was still like, a, like Lon Chaney coming out as the mummy. So even though it's quite creepy, it's probably close to reality. They didn't see a, a peaceful saint with a halo like you see in a lot of the, in a lot of the uh, paintings. Okay, Lazarus comes out of the grave. This poses a problem. Jesus has now completed all of the messianic miracles. As the disciples feared, they were too physically close to the people who had tried to kill Jesus. Remember, the globe. 
They're right over there. Therefore, this is verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They went. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Uh, before we get too far into what the Sanhedrin said, let me point something out. John was probably with Jesus when he heard about Lazarus being sick. He was probably there when Jesus met the sisters. He was probably there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. So John was telling that part of the story from personal experience. He was there, he saw it. How does he know the story of when the Sanhedrin met? They went aside to their little room and they talked. There's no C-SPAN. You know, he's not picking this up on public access. How does he know what they said? Someone who was there told him. Could have been Nicodemus. He's not named, but we know that John did know Nicodemus. Or it was somebody else. We don't really know. But at some point in the future, a person who was in that meeting made friends with the disciples and told the story. So don't judge the people in this meeting too harshly yet. Because some of them came around. This is, this is uh, if you want a parallel story in Acts, this is Saul before he became Paul in this meeting, those kind of people. It's, it, at some point, some of them at least came around. Um, what we do know about the Sanhedrin in this story, in, in this room, is that they were scared. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So they're scared that their work means nothing. What are we accomplishing? They've been watching for the Messiah, expecting these miracles, only he can do. Uh, this guy did them. What have we been doing? How, how did this turn out to be the guy? Uh, they're scared that the Messianic miracles came true, contrary to their expectations. Here is this man performing many signs. They are scared that they will become obsolete. The Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They're headed for the ash heap, they think. Ash heap of history. These are common fears for not just the Sanhedrin and not just the Pharisees who aren't Pharisee. These are common fears among all religious people. Um, I grew up among religious people. I am a religious people. The fear of wasting your time and effort is real. Uh, ironically, to people who talk religion a lot, the fear of seeing any out-of-the-ordinary spiritual event, that's real. Whoa, I didn't expect that. The fear that your work has come to an end is very real. All of these fears ignore one basic fact, that God's plans are continually and perpetually moving forward. And your role in these new plans may, in fact, be totally different from your previous role. Expecting nothing to change and to finally fit where you're supposed to be and never move again is a false hope. That's not reality for someone who follows Christ. Remember we talked in, uh, in uh, chapter 3, Jesus explained the moving of the Spirit. 
the wind blows where it will, and nobody knows from whence it came. And the idea of change is constant. Here at Kingwood, we are, in fact, in the midst of God's plans moving forward. We've had turnover in attendance, changes in leadership. Uh, We are actively, actively examining every ministry we do to make sure that it's really something we should continue doing in the next step of, uh, of our church life. Not everything that we do here is going to continue as it has been done in the past. That's just fact. But we don't need to fear changes like that. People who don't move when God moves are really wasting their time, even if their congregation has millions of people in it. The true fear about wasting your time should be that you're not doing what God asks, not that something changed. Oh, oh my word, you know, my, my role's different. I'm, you know, that's nothing to be fearful about at all. We, though, have the luxury of learning from the Sanhedrin. We can see them in this meeting. We can see what their fears are and how silly they, well, they were real, but they were silly for people who knew so much to be fearful about these things. Some of them, of course, didn't move when God moved, but because we know, coming back around this wide circle, we know that someone told, God, told John about this meeting. We also know some of them did move. Some didn't move, but some did. And here's a cool thought for you. Some of them are with Jesus right now. That's a hopeful thought. Finally, we meet a new character. Show me the next slide, Jav. This is Caiaphas. This is a statue in the Bom Jesus do Monte. I'm not very good at Portuguese. I speak Spanish, but not Portuguese. Is that pretty close, Ralph? Bom Jesus do Monte in Portugal. It was done in the mid-18th century, about 1750. Um, He looks really kind of stern and unmoved here, but he's tearing his cloak. He's, He's kind of a drama queen. Caiaphas is. He's, he's a merry character is what he is. Very emotional. Ah! You know, if something happens, he, he, he overreacts in that way. Um, gives, he puts a lot of drama into everything that, every scene that he's in. Uh, later on, he'll be involved in Jesus' trial. Uh, Caiaphas will. Then in the book of Acts, Caiaphas attacks Peter and the other disciples. He turns up several times. Uh, this is our first introduction, though, in John. And here's what he says, verse 49. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Uh, Has anybody seen Jesus Christ Superstar? Just a few. Or heard heard, the soundtrack at all? This is playing at the Pinnacle this year. You should get tickets and go see it. Jesus Christ Superstar is is a musical written about the life of Christ. This scene is the song, This Jesus Must Die. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? Fools, you have no perception. Right? The stakes we are gambling are frighteningly high. That's Caiaphas in Jesus Christ Superstar. That scene. And then the other, the other uh, uh, Sanhedrin say, Must die, must die, this Jesus must die. That's this scene. 
The whole rest of the, of the chapter is that song in, in uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, what, what Caiaphas says here is a very odd dual statement. Caiaphas hates Jesus. He hates everything about him. He hates that he's doing these messianic miracles because he's not the one that he's supposed to be the Messiah. He hates that he's going to interrupt their, their religious duties and the temple's going to be torn down and the Romans are going to ruin everything. He hates Jesus. He needs Jesus out of the way, but verse 51, he did not say this on his own, so it's not just from his anger, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. God took hatred and used it to speak love. He took destruction and used it to speak wholeness. Jesus would die. Why? For the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Uh, If you ever find yourself in a discussion about why Jesus died, and this is a more complicated discussion than you would think, because some people think it must be just substitutionary atonement, and some say it's Christus victor, that, you know, Christ's victory over death, and some say it's Christus exemplar, that Jesus died as an example for us to follow. I mean, it's a, this is a 2,000-year-old discussion. Why did Jesus die? If you ever find yourself in such a discussion and you're stuck for a simple answer, this is it. Jesus died for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. There's your answer. The unifying factor for the children of God is Jesus dying. It isn't your political views or the candidates you like. It isn't which media we do or do not approve of. We unify around the fact that Jesus died. And that feels like a dark idea to rally around. It's, it's really, boy, it feels brutally black inside when you, when you rally around someone's death. But remember, Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. It's morbid and it's hopeful at the same time, which is fitting for a prophecy that turns hatred to love and destruction to wholeness. God loves a great irony like that. His stories are full of those ironies. Here's your applications for the day. Number one, tell your story carefully. It doesn't mean you have to go around speaking like a a tightly constructed piece of literature like John does. But remember when I said that John takes care of his friends with his words? Take care of your friends with your words. Also, be aware that your enemies, like the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, might one day become your friends. So, speak truth about them, call them out on their mistakes. Jesus did this to his enemies, he called people out, but take care of them with your words as well. Take care of your friends and take care of your enemies with your words. Second thing, know that your personality isn't wrong. Jesus treated Mary and Martha very differently. He adjusted to their individual needs, and he's going to do the same for you. You don't need to be like me. You don't need to be like the person you're sitting next to. You do have to be receptive to Jesus and listen. But your personality isn't wrong. 
Second part of this is that you should use your personality to do the things that Jesus asks everyone to do. Uh, Although we're all different, we're all scattered, is how John describes it, uh, we have common directives, caring for the weak, caring for strangers and refugees, caring for the poor. We're all responsible for that. Your personality will change how you do that, but you're still responsible to do those things. Jesus died for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Third thing, don't waste your time fearing change. God has new plans all the time, and you are in them. You are invited to be a part of those plans. But that means he also intends to change you. So don't waste your time fearing the change. Let's pray quick and sing. God, thanks a lot for a chance to uh, talk about um, John and his friends. Thank you for uh, delivering the story to us in the way you did. Um, Thanks for uh, John's faithfulness through his old age and um, how how carefully he told um, stories about the people he knew. And I pray that uh, everything useful that um, we've talked about this morning will stay with us and we'll ponder it um, and, and make it a part of our lives. Amen. You can stand if you'd like as we sing this last song, number 380 in the hymnal.